0: American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give.
1: Hello and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noel Heister Crow And I'm Tom Crow. Today, we're talking about Mary Lou Williams, who was known as the First Lady of Jazz. She was a woman of tremendous strength, talent, and grace who always seemed to be a blessing to everyone around her, despite being treated very poorly by many people throughout much of her life.
0: Yeah, we've talked a lot about people who chose lives of hardship and sacrifice, like the priests and religious who came over from Europe fleeing the French Revolution, or those who came to be missionaries. Those people have remarkable stories because of the example they give of choosing sacrifice for others over their own comfort. Mary Lou Williams is one of those who had no choice about whether or not she would face hardship and exploitation. But the choice she had was how she would react to those reactions.
1: Yes, and she saw how so many of her dear friends handled difficulty, resorting to drugs and alcohol, some of them dying from these addictions. When her moment of crisis came, she chose a very different path.
0: Hers is a beautiful story, a bit of an Augustinian flair. Late have I loved the beauty ever ancient ever new.
1: Yes, she recognized beauty from an early age, but didn't fully appreciate the power of beauty until later in life. So let's get into this beautiful story.
0: Mary Lou Williams was born Mary Elfrida Scruggs in Atlanta, Georgia, in 1910. Her parents were Baptists, and she was baptized in their church. When still very young, the family moved to the East Liberty neighborhood of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They had to deal with terrible racism in their neighborhood, with neighbors throwing rocks and bricks through their windows. Mary learned to play piano at three years old, and somehow she began giving private concerts when she was still about five or six in her white neighbor's houses. This made them stop throwing bricks through their home's windows. Her mother actually had no idea she was doing this.
1: Seems crazy that her mother wouldn't know she was off playing piano in the neighbor's homes. But Mary was the second of 11 children, so her mother was probably just happy she wasn't underfoot or causing trouble. (laughs)
0: Seriously, the way her mother found out that she'd been doing this was when Mary actually broke her arm, and so she wasn't able to keep up her concert circuit, and the neighbors came to ask where the little piano girl was. And that nickname, the little piano girl of Pittsburgh, stuck with her.
1: So from an early age, Mary learned that playing piano was a way to bridge gaps and share an experience with others. By the time she was
0: 12, she'd already mastered most kinds of popular music around at that time. Ragtime, parlor piano favorites, light opera, boogie woogie, stride, waltzes and marches, and was playing in lots of local venues, including the Orpheum Circuit, the precursor to RKO, to make money to help support her 10 siblings. By 13, she'd begun touring with a band and even played with Duke Ellington and his band, the Washingtonians. Traveling became a thing for her. When she was in her late teens, she was playing in Harlem in New York City. When Louis Armstrong walked in, stopped to listen to her for a while. And when she was done, he picked her up and kissed her.
1: Now, one important thing to note here, Mary Lou didn't learn to read or write music until she was 20. Everything up to this point was by ear and just understanding a keyboard and chord structure. And
0: that's utterly remarkable, Completely. too. Completely. The reason she had to learn to read and write music was because she got a job as an arranger and pianist for a swing band, Andy Kirk and his Twelve Clouds of Joy. In 1927, she married the saxophonist for the band, John Williams, and she had taken the name Mary Lou by this point. So after marriage, she was Mary Lou Williams. The late 1920s saw lots of travel and great successes as an arranger and in composing some of her own original pieces for The Twelve Clouds of Joy.
1: So let's take a moment to explain what being an arranger means. This is a very important thing for a band to get right. So having someone who really knows music and knows instruments is very important.
0: The arranger takes whatever tune they're working with and writes out which instrument will play which part. So which instrument will have the melody, Which instruments will be playing which parts of harmony, what the drums will be doing, and how the chord progression will work to still be that song. In the end, the song is still recognizably what it is, but it's gotten a new interpretation and a new flavor based on what the arranger did with it.
1: So in other words, when a song is done by a different artist or band, especially if they play in a different style from the original, or if they just have different instruments from the original artists, a new arrangement has to be written. Exactly.
0: For those familiar with Scott Bradley's postmodern jukebox, this is exactly what we're talking about. Someone, presumably Scott Bradley in this case, writes a new arrangement of a known tune in the style he's going for. So that's what Mary Lou was doing, and her arrangements became so well-known and so respected that she was given gigs doing arrangements for much bigger names, including Benny Goodman, Tommy Dorsey, Earl Hines, and Dizzy Gillespie.
1: Benny Goodman liked her work so much that he wanted to sign her to an exclusive contract. But Mary Lou wasn't interested in an exclusive contract, preferring to continue to work freelance.
0: The 1930s and 1940s saw Mary Lou's star rise. She became a friend and professional mentor to other big names in the emerging forms of jazz, swing, and the newest musical style, bebop, or just bop. Those names included trumpet player Miles Davis, saxophonist Charlie Parker, pianist Thelonious Monk, and others. They sought her advice and took cues on composition, technique, and how to play with soul from Mary Lou Williams. Many of their innovations in chord structure and chord progression, in how to use rhythm and how to blend it all, were based on things they learned from Mary Lou. She really was at the center of things, right in the middle of the major developments of 20th century American music from the 20s into the 50s.
1: But note something about all the names we've mentioned: Benny Goodman, Dizzy Gillespie, Earl Hines, Tommy Dorsey. Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, and Thelonious Monk, they're all men.
0: Yes, they're all men. Mary Lou was one of very few women making a name for herself during this era in jazz, and she was certainly the most successful. Her accomplishments and involvement would have been impressive even if she were just another man in the world of jazz, but to do it in spite of being a woman in a man's field and being a black woman in a time when racism was still so dominant, well, that's just impressive. And she suffered from both of these conditions. She was not respected by many. She was frequently denied payment and robbed of recognition due her, as when other composers and performers would take her songs and claim them as her own. She was just treated horribly by so many in the industry.
1: Compounding this was the devastation of humanity that she saw around her. So many in the jazz scene went in for the full hedonistic lifestyle, hard drugs, alcohol, loose living, a whole range of self-destructive behaviors. She saw friends succumb to these addictions, marriages and families broken up, careers destroyed, and even a number of them dying.
0: By the early 1950s, she had divorced her first husband, John Williams, after about a decade of marriage and had even gotten married a second time, though this one lasted less than a year. She had lived in Pittsburgh and New York, played with Duke Ellington's orchestra and helped him realize some of his greatest hits. She had done her own radio program in New York, and composed and performed a number of suites and other pieces.
1: But things were not well with her, and she knew it. Jazz was losing its popularity, and all of the human wreckage around her had taken its toll. There also is some evidence that she had been raped at some point and that she might have had an abortion, though that's not definite. The point is, she knew suffering and exploitation.
0: To try to clear her head and get some space, she decided to accept a two-week gig in London. The show turned out to be a commercial variety show rather than a serious presentation of jazz, so it caused further depression.
1: And that dealt another blow.
0: Yes. See, to Mary Lou Williams, jazz was not just another musical form. She regarded jazz as the quintessential art form. Jazz came out of the black American experience with all of its background of suffering. Since it came from suffering and expressed that suffering in music, jazz could communicate the experience of those who suffered in beautiful ways that words could never touch. It's not that only black people could appreciate jazz. She believed that all who suffered, regardless of race, could understand jazz and feel its healing power. But that power was only possible because jazz grew out of such a depth of suffering. So to turn this bearing of the black soul into a commercial variety show was just one more affront to her soul. As the two week tour was ending, she decided she couldn't go back to New York anytime soon. So she got more bookings in England and all over the continent, and she stayed in Europe for two more
1: years. It was while she was there that she first began to pray. The idea to pray came from an American soldier who was still stationed in Europe after World War II. She said of that encounter I played in England for 11 months and spent money as fast as I made it, but I was distracted and depressed. At a party, I met this GI. He noticed something was wrong and he said, you should read the 91st Psalm. I went home and I read all of the Psalms. They cooled me and made me feel protected. I just slept and ate and read the Psalms and prayed.
0: Not a bad plan of life. <laughs> Not at all. So in 1954, it all came to a head when she was playing in Paris. She was doing a show at a well-known cabaret called La Boeuf sur le Toit when she just walked off stage. She had determined that everything around her was the problem. The nightlife, the jazz music, the drugs, the loose living, all of the sinfulness around her was all wrong and she could no longer be a part of it. She wrote, I was still looking for peace of mind and I determined to give up music, nightlife, and all else that was sinful in the eyes of God. After that, I wouldn't play anymore.
1: that's a startling determination from someone for whom music was such a huge part of life.
0: Seriously. She returned to New York and began to change things immediately. She gave away all of her nice clothes and gave away money to anyone who needed it. She'd never been wealthy despite all of her success, but even what she had, she was giving away. She also started taking people into her home, people with serious addictions, including friends from the jazz community. She would take them in and try to nurse them to health and try to get them to stay sober. Her big-time music friends tried to help her by offering her big contracts and high-paying opportunities to come back to jazz, but she turned them all down. The only time she'd play was when she absolutely had to, to make enough money to live.
1: And during this time, her prayer deepened and became more specific. She developed a list of 900 names, people whom she would pray for, by name, Every single day.
0: And this was when she found Our Lady of Lourdes Catholic Church in Harlem.
1: She wasn't Catholic, but the church doors were unlocked, so she was able to go in during the day to pray. Incredible the things that can happen when churches keep the doors unlocked.
0: Indeed. After a time, she bought a rosary and prevailed upon a friend whom she knew had been Catholic to teach her the prayers for praying it. Hours were spent in prayer at Our Lady of Lourdes. Eventually, her friend Lorraine Gillespie introduced her to a priest. Lorraine Gillespie was the wife of William's old friend, the band leader and trumpeter, Dizzy Gillespie, and Lorraine was considering becoming Catholic. So she introduced Mary Lou to Father John Crowley, who was himself a saxophonist and a fan of jazz.
1: He had two pieces of advice for her. First, for her own safety, she should stop taking such risks by taking in so many addicts and trying to reform them on her own. Naturally, it wasn't that he didn't admire what she was doing, but for a number of reasons, it wasn't wise. His second piece of advice was to return to playing the piano. He told her, Mary, God wants you to return to the piano. You can serve him best there, for it is what you know best.
0: God had given her a great gift, and she had nurtured her ability, so the way she could serve God best would be through her music.
1: And what great advice it was.
0: Mary Lou said that her time in prayer became a time when new melodies and new musical possibilities came to her at a feverish pace. Her mind began taking all of the new sacred themes that had never entered her mind before and combining them with the music that just flowed through her. Another priest, Father Anthony Woods, befriended Williams and echoed both the Father Crowley's sentiments. Be more careful in how you help those in the grips of addiction and use your music as your prayer. Father Woods became Mary Lou's spiritual mentor and teacher, and she and Lorraine Gillespie entered the church and were confirmed in 1957.
1: Her reemergence in the jazz scene happened with Dizzy Gillespie's orchestra at the Newport Jazz Festival later that year, and this latter portion of Mary Lou Williams' life was no less prolific than that prior to her conversion, but it was far more joyous. Her music became her prayer. She could still pray for all of those 900 names, but she could do it through music. "'I am praying through my fingers when I play,' she said." I get that good soul sound, and I try to touch people's spirit.
0: So sacred music became a major part of her output. In 1962, she published a choral work named Black Christ of the Andes in honor of St. Martin de Porras, who was canonized that year. Later in the 1960s and into the 1970s, she composed three jazz mass settings, one of which she performed at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York in 1975. The third mass was commissioned by the Vatican. She titled it Mass for Peace, but along with a choreography done for it in 1971, it is now called Mary Lou's Mass.
1: Her life's work became helping people to see what she saw as the sacred possibilities of jazz. She still played secular concerts, but here's the thing. Truth from any source is from the Holy Spirit. A work of art doesn't have to be explicitly religious in nature to convey God's truth.
0: God speaks through beauty, including beautiful music. So to be an excellent Catholic recording artist doesn't mean only writing songs that have religious lyrics. It more means just being truly excellent at presenting beauty in your art, whatever medium it may be.
1: Right. It reminds me of the insight of the artist Carl Schmidt, who we talked about in episode 79. Mary Lou knew that jazz was born of suffering. And now that she was Catholic, she had a faith that helped suffering make sense. That made suffering redemptive. It was the perfect marriage in her mind. In
0: 1975, she told the New York Times, Americans don't realize how important jazz is. It's healing for the soul. It should be played everywhere, in churches, nightclubs, everywhere. We have to use every place we can.
1: Through her last years, she went around to schools giving lectures and performances about the history and importance of jazz. She had spent so many years at the center of the emergence and development of the music of America. Her final years were dedicated to evangelizing the next generation about jazz and helping all to see the sacredness of what she regarded as the most pure art form. Mary Lou Williams served as artist-in-residence at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina for the last few years of her life. It was there, in Durham, that she died of cancer in 1981. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. And we ask you to consider supporting the work of SQPN.
0: Yes, now is a great time to become a StarQuest patron. Thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter, when you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor. So if you become a new patron at $10 per month, After three months, our donor will give $30 to StarQuest to support all of our shows, including American Catholic History, making your gift go even further. If you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now is the time. Visit sqpn.com slash give.
1: To learn more about Mary Lou Williams, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimage to the Kentucky Holy Land and Bourbon Country, please visit sqpn.com slash history. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow StarQuest on Twitter at SQPN. I'm Noel Hester Crow.
0: And I'm Tom Crow.
1: Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest.
0: What are you? What are you?
1: This chair what is keeps sinking down. I don't know. I don't know how it works. I Sitting on the floor. Can reach the mic? Sorry. I'm already short.
0: <laughs> the, the chair is slowly sinking